Science Friday is supported by Progressive. Now, most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com slash WNYC and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. Listener supported WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. I know you've seen the pictures or heard the stories. Hurricane Ida wreaked havoc on the U.S. this week, starting in Louisiana, leaving daunting damage and a long road ahead for residents. Even though Ida was downgraded to a tropical storm, its trail of destruction moved throughout the eastern U.S. and mid-Atlantic, flooding cities, damaging homes. Boy, New York City was pummeled by more than half a foot of rain in just a few hours, flooding streets, subway stations, and apartments. Altogether, more than 40 people were killed by the storm in the Northeast. Now, we've heard it from scientists before. Extreme weather like this is inextricably tied to climate change, and it feels like those apocalyptic-level events are happening more and more frequently. And if that's how you feel about it, you're right. Joining me today to talk about this and other big science stories of the week is Maggie Kurth, science reporter for 538, based in Minneapolis. Welcome back, Maggie. Hi, thanks for having me. So it really does seem that these terrible storms are happening more and more. Is there data to back this up? Yeah. Coincidentally, this week, the World Meteorological Association released a study that was showing that since 1970, the number of weather-related disasters, so storms, floods, droughts, that's all increased five-fold over the last 50 years. There definitely are more weather-related disasters happening now than there used to be. And, you know, we've heard uh, scientists say that the storms would get more intense. They'd be bigger storms. And this storm was, was a doozy, wasn't it? Yeah, so Ida is one of the storms that scientists have tracked over the last maybe two decades, where it hits this big patch of warm water in the Gulf of Mexico and just goes from ho-hum to a monster overnight. You know, in 24 hours, Ida went from not much at all to a Category 4, and that was right before it made landfall in Louisiana. And this is something that scientists have noticed more and more in the past couple of decades. It's not clear whether it's happening, that particular mechanism is happening more, but it is something that we've become a lot more aware of. And it's one of those ways that, you know, heat levels in the water affect the hurricanes that happen. And I guess the takeaway message here is that uh, storms like Ida, they're not going to stop anytime soon. They absolutely are not. Um, One of the things that came out of that Meteorological Association report was that on the plus side, deaths have gone down. So we have way more of these disasters, but way fewer deaths. On the downside, we are spending way, way, way more money cleaning up after these things and protecting against them. You know, and that's what climatologists said years ago. I remember talking to them is that they they said not only will the storms or whatever be more intense, but you're going to be diverting your money away from other things you might need it for in in, in metropolitan areas or localities to just keeping up with the damage. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, you look at what happened in New York with the flooding. You look at what has happened to the electrical grid system in Louisiana. And that's just going to be a lot of money to not necessarily upgrade anything, but just to fix it. All right. Let's move from flooding to fires uh, out west to talk about the story from it's California. It's such a great day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, Labor Day. So it's usually a weekend for hikers and campers and outdoor explorers. But California is closing its national forests for safety reasons. Yeah. 20 million acres of California's national forests are going to be off limits this Labor Day. And that's because of these wildfires. So no camping, no hiking, no biking. And that's not just for Labor Day. The closures are actually going to extend at least through September 17th. Now, these are extensions of closures that were only applying to nine of the national forests in Northern California. And those were set to expire just after Labor Day. But then the Forest Service came back and said, you know what, we're actually extending this to all 17 of the national forests in California, and it's going to last longer. So this is basically an effort to try to keep new fires from starting. If you go and look at the California fire map right now, there's just forest fires all up and down the state. And the Forest Service is running out of resources to fight that. And they kind of can't deal with more new fires starting. So they're just trying to keep people out of those places. Yeah. So this is for national forests. What what about others, other kinds of national parks, so to speak? Yeah. National parks will still be open. So Yosemite is going to still be open. Um, state parks will still be open. But it's these national forests that are going to be closed. And there's also some private forest lands that have also already been closed to the public. Hmm. Let's move on to another big story this week. Another, oh, goodness. Tec- I'm full of them. Texas this week essentially banned abortion by passing a so-called Heartbeat Act, which bans abortion past the first six-week mark, and the Supreme Court did not overturn it. There's so much, so much we can talk about here in terms of politics. Maybe we can find a science angle on this, and and that's... That's this heartbeat bill, right? There are a lot of these so-called heartbeat bills. Talk about that. So there is a lot that is deeply messy about trying to tie human personhood to a heartbeat. It's probably worth saying here that I know this from firsthand experience. I've had two miscarriages, and the second of those had a heartbeat, even at the same time that my doctor could see it was non-viable. So heartbeats are an encouraging sign for success of a pregnancy, But they are not actually the solid indicator that a lot of these bills present them as. And that means inevitably, you're going to be getting into territory where women with non-viable pregnancies are forced to continue them until a heartbeat stops. And that's something that can take weeks. And on top of this, a fetal heartbeat can continue even after a woman's water has broken and the risk of infection is starting to rise. So we've seen in other countries, in some hospitals, that rules preventing doctors from performing abortions while there's still a fetal heartbeat, those are things that have led to the deaths of women who were experiencing a miscarriage and couldn't obtain an abortion before sepsis set in. That's exactly, in fact, what happened to Savita Halapanavar, the woman in Ireland whose death in 2012 at the age of 31 ultimately set in motion the overturning of Ireland's anti-abortion laws. And the science is just, it it just gets more murky from there. You know, what we're calling a fetal heartbeat, for example, isn't exactly that. The fetus doesn't have a circulatory system at six weeks of development. It doesn't even have a heart. What we're talking about is some cells that have started initiating electrical impulses. But that's really different from what most of us think about when we think about a heartbeat. And it gives you an idea of what a fetus at that stage of development. And again, six weeks is counted from the woman's last period. So that's not even two weeks after a missed period. What that actually looks like, it's it's not yeah. a heart. I, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your, your, your loss there, Maggie. And, and if I'm not incorrect, I remember it from my biology days. You can put heart muscle cells in a Petri dish and they'll start beating. Yeah. I mean, it's, The process of creating new life is really, really messy, and it's not like this neat and tidy miracle that we want it to be. And anytime we kind of start 
trying to set objective hard cutoffs for when life begins, you're inevitably getting into some muck mm-hmm. science-wise. Yeah. Let's move into some other news in the medical sphere. Johnson & Johnson's HIV vaccine, not talking about COVID, we're talking about HIV, its potential vaccine doesn't work as promised. Tell us about that. Yeah. So back in 2017, Johnson & Johnson started a trial for a vaccine against HIV. And this week that trial ended after the vaccine turned out to be only about 25% effective, which is not enough to justify continued research. So this failed trial was for one that combined a couple different types of protection in two different shots. The first was um, introducing HIV genes to the body that were ferried inside a harmless adenovirus. And the second shot contained genetically engineered versions of HIV surface proteins. Now, this is different than what you've probably heard of Moderna doing an mRNA-based HIV vaccine. That research is still going. Um, They're actually probably going to start a really small trial sometime this month of that Moderna vaccine. And there are lots of other groups that are working on HIV vaccines. That's been true for at least the last decade. But so far, none of them have really managed to get efficacy rates that are high enough to you know, justify getting this out there to people. Um, and they've all been pretty small trials as well. Like this J&J trial was 2,600 people. The Moderna trial that's going to start soon is probably going to be fewer than 100 Scientists think this work is promising. They think they're on the trail of something effective, but it's probably going to be years before any of these things are going anywhere. Remind us why it's so difficult to get an HIV vaccine. Now, they've been working on it for 40 years. Right. Well, I mean, part of the problem is that our bodies don't naturally clear an HIV infection. So like a lot of the way that we have designed vaccines in the past is by looking at how the body produces antibodies, kills the virus, gets it out of your body. And that's not how HIV in your body works. You know, our immune systems can't see it half the time. And it's not something that we just get rid of, you know, naturally on our own. So we don't know how to make the right amount of antibodies to do it ourselves. Speaking of uh, not knowing how to do something, let's move on to the International Space Station. And I mean by yeah. that, I mean, it's 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 worked pretty well. It's lasted longer than people expected. But now it looks like it's getting past its prime, like all of us. It's getting old. Right. Yeah. So this was originally built in 1998, and it was supposed to last 15 years or have a lifespan of 15 years. So it is being pretty good for what it was designed for. But we are also kind of starting to see that it's going to have an endpoint. There were, were Russian officials this past week that were warning that 80% of the in-flight systems on the ISS, they're past an expiration date, and there are these small cracks that are starting to form in some places on the station and its structure. And those are things that are going to worsen over time. Russia has been hinting that they might leave the station permanently by 2025, and it might not last past 2030. Wow. Okay. Well, we'll we'll stay tuned for that and talk about alternatives to it uh, next time you're with us, Maggie. Okay. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Now, it's always great to have you, Maggie Kurth, science reporter for 538, based in Minneapolis. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, kids across the country are heading back to school, which begs the question: How do we keep them safe during this Delta variant? Sci-fi back to school issue coming up after the break. Stay with us. Science Friday is supported by Zbiotics. The team of PhD scientists at Zbiotics are tackling rough mornings after drinking with their new pre-alcohol probiotic. This probiotic breaks down the byproduct of alcohol while you drink and sets you up for a great next day. Check out the cutting-edge technology for yourself at zbiotics.com/friday and use the code Friday to get 10% off your first order. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money. That's zbiotics.com/friday and use the code Friday at checkout for 15% off. WNYC Studios is supported by the Natural Resources Defense Council. Using science, the law, and people power, NRDC is committed to confronting the climate crisis, protecting public health, and safeguarding nature. 
They address the impact of fossil fuels on communities and our environment. They help protect wildlife, public lands, and irreplaceable ecosystems that all living things depend on. They work to enact policies for clean air, clean water, and access to nature for all. You can help NRDC safeguard the earth for future generations. Visit nrdc.org WNYC for more information. For so many black people, the Wiz feels like home. The new stage revival has Broadway buzzing, and as it gears up for a national tour, we'll consider the impact this story continues to have 50 years down the yellow brick road. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on the next Notes from America as we pay tribute to The Wiz. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. Time now to check in on the state of science. This is KERA St. Louis Public Radio Iowa Public Radio News. Local stories with national significance. Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis is crusading against masks in schools, prompting a legal battle between the state and school districts that want kids to mask up. This is happening during an unprecedented surge in COVID cases in Florida due to the Delta variant. Now that many Floridian kids are back to school, How are they playing into the growing caseload? And what's the latest with the legal battle? Joining me today to shed some light on this is my guest, Stephanie Colombini, healthcare reporter for WUSF in Tampa, Florida. Welcome to Science Friday, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. Are kids back to school in Florida for the most part? Yeah, Florida gets a pretty early start compared to some other parts of the country. So we had kids back in class on August 10th, and and more have returned as the month went on. Uh, But we kind of started to see problems almost immediately with the Delta variant. So thousands of students and staff in some areas have already had to go into quarantine due to positive COVID cases or being exposed to someone in class. So back to school has not been a typical experience for everyone. I'll bet. And let's talk about this wild legal battle that's going on in Florida. Walk us through what's been happening with this ban on mask mandates. Yeah, it has been pretty wild. And and right now we're sort of in limbo, but it all started with a parent's bill of rights law. And that went into effect earlier this summer. And it basically says parents have the final say about their kids' health care. And then Governor Ron DeSantis issued an executive order banning mask mandates in schools. And, and he argues that districts that do require them are violating that bill of rights. So that's kind of the nut of all of this. Because when you're talking about forcing somebody to wear, particularly these really young kids, you know, to wear a mask six, seven, eight hours a day, uh, the parent knows what effects that has on them. The parents in the best situation to know how does that affect their learning, their attention. But it was actually a group of parents who sued the state over this, and a judge recently sided with them, and and he ruled the governor's ban is unconstitutional. Said in the same way, you know, schools can require kids get a measles vaccine, for example, in order to protect the the broader student body. They can have other health requirements, so long as they're reasonable. And he said following CDC guidelines on masks is reasonable. And then the judge blocked the state from enforcing the ban and punishing districts that have these mandates because the state had threatened to withhold funding. Well, the state went ahead and did it anyway this week, and they withheld funding that amounted to the salaries of school board members from two districts in Broward and Alachua counties. They were sort of the first ones to really defy the state with these mask mandates, but more had followed suit, and now they're under investigation from state officials and facing the same threats. Uh, Hillsborough County, where Tampa's located, is one of them. The governor's defending the move, says the state's appealing the case, but we have also seen more districts approve mask mandates since the ruling. So now about half the students in the state attend public schools where masking is in place. So we'll see what happens next. Wow. Do we expect uh, aid coming from Washington? I know the White House said that any school that was punished, they would make up the money. That is what they had proposed when these threats were kind of first made. We're still waiting to see how it's all going to pan out. But the Biden administration had said that schools who were punished could use federal stimulus money to make up for any lost funding. So it is definitely possible that these districts will make it out okay financially. But at the same time, you know, had they not lost money from the state, those federal dollars could go towards something else. So school officials are are definitely very concerned. And we have heard some districts are exploring their own legal options. 
Hmm. Is a ban on mask mandates what Floridians even want? That depends on who you ask. Uh, the political divisions in Florida right now are, are very much reflective of what you see across the country. So there are definitely parts of the state where the majority of people support this kind of ban. They are not sending their kids to school in mass, but other parents are furious about it. And they were really pushing for their districts to do more to protect their kids. Uh, we've seen people very, very passionate about this issue make their cases at school board meetings lately. Uh, for example, this Hillsborough County man, Bill Carl, he very much opposed the governor's ban on mass mandates. He feared for his family's safety and and he got really emotional at the emergency meeting that the school board had called to determine whether they were going to defy that ban. As the father of two Hillsborough County students and a beautiful teacher wife, I beg you to institute a real mask mandate but most of all, I beg you today, have courage. Wow. And we do know that the county moved forward with the stricter mandate that only allowed for medical opt-outs. And that didn't make everyone happy. This mom, Ellen Jackson, she did not want her kids to have to wear masks, and she was pretty mad about it. Why have you chosen to break the law? I voted for you. And you're breaking the law and muzzling my children. So... She was angry, but we've seen people even angrier. We've seen fights break out at some of these meetings, even violence, police having to be called. So it has definitely been a crazy scene in some places. What I do think is telling, though, is when you look at a school district like Hillsborough, they started the school year with a looser mask requirement. Parents could opt out for any reason. They just had to fill out a form. And even then, only about 15% of students went that route. So a vast majority of families were okay following the rules and sending their kids to school in mass, whether they felt strongly about it or not. And Hillsborough leans Democratic, but even mostly conservative counties like Sarasota went on to mandate mass. So, you know, even a conservative leaning district is cracking down. Uh, that really is interesting. Yeah. Do, do we know if cases are rising in Florida with uh, the kids there? We do. They, they are rising. And it just shows that the Delta variant really is changing the game when it comes to how this virus is affecting children. So kids under 12 made up the largest portion of new cases, according to last week's update from the state. They do these weekly reports. There was more than 26,000 kids testing positive, and that was up from 16,000 the week before, regardless of very high number. And pediatric hospitalizations have hit record highs this week. We've got more than 200 kids being treated for COVID. And we've heard from hospitals that this is just not like anything they've seen with previous strains, that even in past surges, you know, a facility might be treating a couple kids at a time with COVID. And now, you know, one hospital might have a dozen. And, you know, that seems small and the death rate among kids is definitely extremely low still. But that doesn't mean kids can't get really sick or, or potentially suffer from long-term damage. So it's, it's not something parents want for their kids. You know, this is almost like watching politics or health as sport. Yeah. You know, who, who's winning, who's losing. After all, it really is about the kids. And parents sometimes it forget is. when they get all heated and excited about these things. Thank you. Stephanie Colombini, healthcare reporter for WUSF in Tampa, Florida. Thank you. Concerns about kids going back to school are not limited to Florida. All over the country, arguments about mask mandates are exploding in school board meetings and courtrooms. In places with no mask mandates, parents are making decisions about if they should send their kids to school with masks anyway. And masks are just part of this equation. You may be wondering what your school is doing about air ventilation or rules about keeping kids six feet apart. With rising pediatric COVID cases, we are all wondering, how do we keep our kids safe? So joining me today to talk about the science behind back to school in the time of Delta variant is Dr. Caitlin Jettelina, assistant professor at the University of Texas School of Public Health based in Dallas. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Nice to have you. Obviously, Texas is a huge state and you can't cover the whole thing. But what are you hearing about how back to school is going? So we've been back to school for about two weeks now in Texas and uh, things aren't going very well. Uh, we have really high community transmission rates and kids in schools are part of the community. And so we're going to see high rates among kids in schools. 
And we are having tens to hundreds of cases of uh, COVID among kids in schools right now with thousands in quarantine. Uh, unfortunately, this has actually been closed some schools and some schools to, to change their mind and start mandating masks as well. You know, it feels like this year there's way more debate about mask mandates and safety than last year. Uh, is this true? I mean, is that my perception? Is it correct? Why is that? It is a correct perception. Uh, it's a very strong and exhausting debate this year. Um, and, you know, I, I think it has to do with a couple of things. One, this school year is very different than last school year. Last school year, we had the option of virtual learning. Not everyone was going into schools. If they were going into schools, they were wearing masks and staying vigilant and uh, socially distanced. Now is an, uh, it's a different ball game. Uh, there is pandemic fatigue. There is also this perceived knowledge that kids aren't at high risk for COVID and schools aren't even implementing public health mitigation measures that we know work and are especially important with this new variant of Delta. Hmm. We got a question on our Sci-Fi Vox Pop app from an elementary school teacher in Indiana. I'm going to play it for you now. In Indiana, we start school in late July, and so we are in our fifth week currently. I guess my question is, why is COVID hitting us so much harder this year? Since the start of school this year, in this five weeks, we have already tripled our number of positive cases from all of last year combined. And it is exhausting. I can't figure out what it is exactly. Is it Delta being more contagious? Is it Delta not sparing kids the way the previous versions had? All of those things combined, and what can we do? Wow, yeah. That's exactly what you said you were seeing in Texas. Do you have an answer for this listener? Yeah. So like I said, Delta has changed the game, and it's changed the game in a number of factors. One, it's more transmissible. It's more contagious than previous variants. So one infected kid or one infected teacher on average will infect about eight others compared to before, whereas one infected would infect about two other people. The other game changer is that people that are infected have thousand times the viral load. And so what this means is people test positive more quickly following exposure and they shed a ton more virus for longer. So if you come in contact with a positive case, the probability of getting infected increases and you have the opportunity to infect others too for longer. Two other things that changes the game. One, vaccinated can now transmit the virus. This wasn't the case before Delta. Before Delta, vaccines reduced transmission by about 90%. And unfortunately, with Delta, vaccinated has about the same viral load. So it looks like vaccinated reduces transmission by a little, but certainly not by a lot like we saw before. And then finally, what that listener pointed to was that, yes, Delta is a more severe disease. And we know this among adults uh, very well. So in the UK, we saw that Delta patients had two times the risk of hospital admission. A study in Singapore showed that Delta patients have higher risk of needing oxygen, going to the ICU, and even dying. The big question right now, though, that we don't have the answer to is, is Delta more severe for kids? Uh, we think that since it is for adults, it will be for kids, but we haven't seen the evidence yet. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. You know, that's all really interesting stuff because I want to talk about the CDC case that was published recently. Last May in Marin County, California, a teacher who was symptomatic and unvaccinated infected half the classroom. And the kids were all under 12, so too young to be vaccinated. And they, the kids, were all masked, but the teacher's mask came off occasionally for reading time. And then you had parents and siblings and co-workers all getting sick from this event. 
And this classroom had HEPA filters. It had windows wide open. It seems like they were doing everything right except for the sick teacher taking off the mask. What do you take from this case? Yeah, it's uh, unfortunately going to be the reality when we start opening up these schools. Uh, And this is a fantastic example that was published. Uh, The biggest thing that we can uh, prevent for this not happening is getting teachers vaccinated. We need teachers. We need staff vaccinated. And then (laughs) if you are sick, do not come to school, you know, stay at home, quarantine, get tested. Um, And then also, yes, wear a mask. Um, That teacher should have been wearing a mask the entire time and not taking it off while reading that story aloud to the students. Um, Unfortunately, like you mentioned, all of these students uh, were under the age of 12, so they were unvaccinated. They were masked, uh, which is very refreshing to hear. The problem is that masks need to be worn correctly. They need to have a really great fit. They need to have a good filter and they need to be comfortable for kids. And so with Delta, we really need to step up our mask game. We can't have kids wearing cloth masks. We should be getting them really effective masks like the KN94 or KN95 to particularly help with this very transmissible, very contagious variant. So let me ask you as an epidemiologist, if you were to come up with a way to safely go back to school, how would you do it? Yeah, I I think I kind of, I just (laughs) explained my ideal world, you know, 100% vaccination rate among those that are eligible, among those that are 12 and plus, everyone needs a vaccine. Ideally, we could have classrooms outside. I know that's not ideal where I am in Texas, where we get to 100 degrees. And it certainly won't be ideal once we start hitting the winter months in the Northeast. But having as much airflow, uh, because we know this Delta is more aerosol transmitted than droplets. And so airflow is really important too. And then, like I said, really good masks. Those that fit, those that are effective from you know, a filter perspective, and those that are comfortable so kids do adhere to masking all day long in the classroom. Very good points. Thank you for making them for us. That's about all the time we have. Dr. Caitlin Jettelina, Assistant Professor at the University of Texas School of Public Health based in Dallas. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're quite welcome. And as you were talking about looking at airflow in the classroom, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to be continuing our back to school discussion and looking at high tech air purifiers and why some may be more hot air than clean air. Stay with us. Science Friday is supported by Zbiotics. The team of PhD scientists at Zbiotics are tackling rough mornings after drinking with their new pre alcohol probiotic. This probiotic breaks down the byproduct of alcohol while you drink and sets you up for a great next day. Check out the cutting edge technology for yourself at zbiotics.com slash Friday and use the code Friday to get 10% off your first order. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money. That's zbiotics.com slash Friday and use the code Friday at checkout for 15% off. WNYC Studios is supported by the Natural Resources Defense Council. Using science, the law, and people power, NRDC is committed to confronting the climate crisis, protecting public health, and safeguarding nature. They address the impact of fossil fuels on communities and our environment. They help protect wildlife, public lands, and irreplaceable ecosystems that all living things depend on. They work to enact policies for clean air, clean water, and access to nature for all. You can help NRDC safeguard the earth for future generations. Visit nrdc.org slash WNYC for more information. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. As students head back to school, parents are getting a lot of mail about what schools are doing to better protect kids in the classroom, like mask policies, spacing, lunch plans, and more. And one item on many lists is improving ventilation. Of course, better ventilation and air circulation 
can be key to fighting the COVID virus, but it turns out that some districts are turning to high-tech air purification schemes that may be more hot air than clean air and could even be harmful. Joining me now is Christina Jewett. She's senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News based in California. She's written extensively about this. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you, Ira. Glad to be here. As I say, you have written several articles about this idea of air purifier and ventilation technology. What got you interested in this? Well, you know, last November, this came to my attention, you know, not as a journalist, but actually as a mom. I got curious about what type of air cleaning um, my son's school district was going to be pursuing. And I happened to gander at the school board agenda, and I saw that they apparently found something that was going to be better and cheaper than a HEPA filter. And I'd been covering, you know, healthcare workers dying of coronavirus last year. And I had a lot of time log talking to, to hospitals, occupational health and safety experts about how to keep workers safe. And I was sort of stunned that there was something better than the HEPA filter. So I thought, well, I need to, to dig deeper into this. It's time to, to do some research. And what I discovered was that there are a lot of indoor air quality experts who are actually very skeptical of a lot of claims that are made by folks in this air purifier industry. Can you give me an idea what technology they are offering that people are saying are very skeptical about? So on one side, you've got the HEPA filter, basic mechanical, easy to imagine. You've got a fan, you've got a filter. It traps things. Simple, right? But then there's this whole other universe of what they call electronic air cleaners, and they do a lot of different things. They take an electrical charge and they change molecules in the air. They're called ionization, bipolar ionization, photocatalytic oxidation. Some use what they call reactive oxygen or dry hydrogen peroxide. There's actually quite a variety out there. The notion is that they're taking the coronavirus and basically sort of like zapping it. And the experts I've talked to are really concerned about these claims because if these devices are powerful enough to have that effect, then the likelihood is that there's a lot of other gases in the air that are getting turned into something else as well. And that's an area where there's just a real lack of study and evidence of sort of what your kid's marker fumes or the gas from the, the cars idling outside or the Axe body spray is going to turn into when it hits one of these sort of reactors. So there's a lot of concern about the unintended effects of these devices. And then there's also some concern about whether some do much of anything at all. What do you mean do much of anything at all? Well, for instance, the companies that make these devices do a lot of studies. Um, it can be hard to get your hands on the studies, but when you do, sometimes what you see is that the conditions in the study are not really close to resembling the conditions of how the device works sort of in the real world. You might see something like 60,000 ions per cubic centimeter. Well, that's going to have an effect. But how many ions per cubic centimeter does this device deliver to a classroom? That's something that's harder to find out. And the range we've found has been about 2,000 to 10,000, which is a lot less than 60,000. So when you have a study and um, the results sort of ending up in, in the marketing pitches with studies that are just really hard for everyday people to interpret, it's just sort of very difficult to understand what that's going to do in your kid's classroom. So the filtration companies might go to a school board meeting and offer their special kind of filtration and sort of snow the committee because they are not offering the kind of evidence the committee can analyze. Well, here's the, the interesting thing there. The filtration is sort of what you want, right? That's the basic old-fashioned standard HEPA technology. That's what the CDC is recommending. That's what the indoor air quality experts I've talked to say is really the most proven technology. But your HEPA filter is kind of like a pair of khaki pants or a garden hose. It's, it's not on patent. It's not expensive. It's not that hard to find. And there's not a sales force for it. But what you do see is the more electronic air cleaners. Those are the companies going to the school boards talking about ionization, 
bipolar ionization, needle point bipolar ionization, technologies that you've probably never heard of that sound really amazing. They sound spectacular. And some of the caution I've heard from indoor air quality experts is that when they're talking about a 99% reduction of something, you really have to look at that in context of the reductions you see with gravity and time. I mean, gravity and time reduce things by 99% eventually. Someone with COVID sneezes and give gravity and time a chance and, and they'll make that disappear. So some of the studies that, that school boards really, we found, don't seem to actually be reviewing carefully really need to be looked at with a lot of skepticism because those questions aren't always you know, very clearly answered. So then why are schools jumping on board this technology? From our reporting, my colleague Lauren Weber and I found out that these companies are bombarding school districts. The facility manager became the most popular guy in town when the CARES Act money, I mean, hundreds of millions um, started flooding into schools. So you've got a really um, motivated sales force that stands to make really high margins. I mean, we saw ads on the web saying that people can make 600 plus per device on some of these electronic air cleaners. So there's a big push to the facility manager. The facility manager is advising the school board. This sounds amazing. The school board just wants to tell the parents everything is safe and things just sort of snowball from there. And by the time this gets to the desk of someone who might you know, start asking some tough questions, often the ink's already dried on a contract and parents are being told it's totally safe for your kid to come back to school. Hmm. Do you have any sense of how many schools might be deploying these devices? Well, in April, Lauren and I did some digging and we found that 2,000 schools around the country had bought electronic type air cleaners. And it was amazing to see, you know, what the company selling these say versus what the school board hears. Because sometimes the school officials themselves will sort of retell the story of these devices in even more glowing terms. You know, I, I imagine there's a lawyer for some of these companies cringing somewhere saying, oh my goodness, we could never say that. But the principals and the school, school board chiefs will advance claims that these devices are, are sending out molecules that are sort of actively seeking and destroying the coronavirus and sort of zapping at it at the, the child's mouth. And these are things that, that really go beyond what even the companies will say. Wow. It's, it's, well, I hear you say that some of these devices may be putting out ozone. That sounds pretty potentially dangerous to me. Yeah, we did find that some of these devices do um, put out ozone. And if you're curious about whether a device emits ozone, there's a really simple way to find out. It's not always that clear from the marketing and the advertising, but you can actually try to get it shipped to California. California is the only state with actually has laws and regulations against air purifiers emitting ozone. So I've done this. I've tried to buy different devices because I live in, in Sacramento and suddenly, you know, cannot ship to California. I say, uh-oh, that, <laughs> that is definitely a red flag. But yeah, some of these devices, especially there's been a lot sold in New Jersey, they emit ozone and ozone's a gas of concern. I mean, it can damage the lungs of children. There's, there's research that's shown that it mounts an immune response in the lungs. The lungs treat it as a foreign invader and it can trigger asthma attacks. And there's even some research suggesting that it could potentially cause asthma in kids who are otherwise healthy. So ozone's definitely not something you want to be introducing into a classroom. Hmm. You know, one of the other approaches I've seen mentioned is powerful ultraviolet lights in air ducts or filter boxes. I mean, we, we know that UV light can kill germs. Is there good evidence for that technology working here? That has more evidence. So the upper room germicidal UV has a pretty good research base behind it. You know, one of the things the experts I've talked to have mentioned is that you don't want, you know, a child's eye on the UV. It, it can actually damage the eyes. I, I was touring preschools for my, my younger son, and one of them said, oh, we have a UV wand and we disinfect the toys every day. And I said in front of the kids. <laughs> and No, no, just the staff. I said, okay, do they have eye protection? No. <laughs> mm. Okay. Um, 
So as we go into this sanitizing state of mind, we really have to keep sort of doing that research to make sure everything's being done in, in the safest possible way. Yeah. Is, is there any kind of regulation or a certification these devices have to go through? Does anybody review them? You know, that's a really good question. And it's a question we asked a lot of government agencies. And, you know, I wanted to start with the FDA. I thought, well, they've got to do something about this. But basically, they don't do much about it if you're not making a, a disinfecting claim about something going on inside the body, since it's outside the body that goes to the EPA. And they have regulations on pesticides. And I learned that leech is a pesticide, like anything that, that claims to kill a pest, which could be a bacteria or virus, um, like these devices, is considered a pesticide device. And so the EPA regulations are so old that where you might have a requirement to test something you spray or a liquid like bleach to see how effective and safe it is, those regs don't actually apply to these disinfecting air purifiers. So basically, there's really no government agency that's looking at any kind of like apples to apples, you know, is this safe? Is this effective kind of evaluation that just really doesn't exist right now. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. So what I hear you saying is that your research shows that, yes, everybody agrees that the cleaner air is good. You're not arguing against schools taking steps to filter out or purify the air in classrooms. But your research is showing that just some of the simplest techniques, like the HEPA filters, the cheapest, might be the best way to go. You know, that's what the experts we've been talking to have been saying all along. And when we started this reporting, there was very little clear-throated and loud <laughs> guidance from any agencies. But in the months that have passed, um, the CDC has come out and said, you want the portable HEPA filter, you want to look at your HVAC system and make sure you have a really good filter, like a MERV-13 filter, you want to pay attention to the air exchanges, make sure you've got five or six an hour in the room. And that is a really robust layer of, of safety. And the CDC even just recently came out with a report showing that, you know, you have people with masks on and you've got HEPA filters in the room. That actually reduced the infectious aerosols from a mannequin. It was a study, of course, by 90% in a pretty quick manner. Wow. So the, there is really good research and there's really good direction out there now. But as far as some of these other technologies, the experts really consider the jury to be out. And we even found a study where Boeing decided to say, hey, should we use this stuff in our airplanes? And at the end of the day, Boeing tested some electronic air cleaners in their airplanes and in labs. And their conclusion was, no, this is not ready for prime time. There's promise to this technology, but we're not putting this in our airplanes. Well, Christina, I'm happy to have you on to debunk a lot of this stuff. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. and Thank you for your hard work. Well, happy to be here, and, and it's really a pleasure, Ira. I, I appreciate it. You're welcome. Christina Jewett, she's a senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News based in California. She has written extensively about this subject. One last thing before we finish our back-to-school special I know that many science educators are eager to return to in-person instruction this fall, despite the challenges ahead. We checked in with some educators from around the country to get a preview of what they are excited to explore with their students this year. I am most excited this year to get out with my students in the field to learn about the phenomenon that is our local Grizzly Creek fire and the Glenwood Canyon flash floods that have occurred since then. I love getting my students involved in science that is happening right around them in their community, and we will spend an entire semester learning more about that. I can't wait! My engineering students are diving into the math and engineering of pop-up books. It's a really fun and unexpected way to start off the year and to give the students a chance to practice skills that engineers need. They're cutting out shapes and measuring and being precise and analyzing data, finding patterns, and trying to figure out how pop-ups work. Some of my favorite quotes so far, Look what I made. This is so satisfying. And my favorite is I had no idea that there was even engineering in pop-up books. 
I teach K through four STEM in Charlottesville, Virginia, and I'm super excited to get my fourth graders into chemical engineering this year. They're going to investigate the physical properties of slime when they change the variables of the recipe, and then they're going to use that data to design the perfect slime for each other. I teach biology to high school juniors. So we started the year with a little week-long mini-unit, just reviewing some of the really foundational concepts about biology, so just cells and atoms and molecules. And the phenomenon I used to drive the unit was the evolution of protocells, which are these robot-synthesized droplets that exhibit some really interesting lifelike characteristics. My students asked just the most creative questions to try to figure out what the droplets were. They showed a lot of curiosity and courage in asking questions that don't have easy answers. It just made me so excited and inspired to be able to be in person with students again and really work with them side by side to figure out tough questions and to really think like scientists. That was Autumn from Glenwood Springs, Jamie from Cincinnati, Teresa from Charlottesville, and Hannah from Denver sharing some of their excitement for this school year. And as you can hear, STEM educators can't help but inspire others with their curiosity and love of learning. And that's why we work with teachers like Jamie to design learning experiences that parents and teachers can use with students. She's a Science Friday educator collaborator, and you can try her pop-up activity by visiting sciencefriday.com educators. And to all you teachers out there, stay curious, stay safe, and best wishes for the coming school year. And that's about all the time we have for this hour. Charles Berquist is our director. Our producers are Christy Taylor and Kathleen Davis. John Dankowski is our news director. B.J. Liederman composed our theme music. And of course, if you missed any part of the program, you'd like to share it with folks that you know. You can ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday or head over to our podcasts. Have a great weekend. I'm Ira Plato. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts.